who need to back, but that might be my own 34-year-old problem, and maybe you guys don't have that problem. All right, um, let's start by reading Psalm 2, and then I'll pray, and then we'll actually get going to the important stuff. All right, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, I just pray um, that the words that are about to be spoken would point directly to you. Um, May we leave today remembering what you have for us in our souls, um, and may everything else just fade away. Thank you for who you are, Lord. Thank you for your word, and may your spirit come and nudge us the way each of us needs to be nudged. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I was gonna introduce myself, although Dave really took care of that for me. Um, But for those of you guys that don't know me, my name is Brittany Dykus. As Dave mentioned, I am not a pastor here. I'm a totally normal person, like all of you. Um, I don't normally have to sit in the boring pastor's corner. I do sit right there, normally. Um, And I, I, like I said, I'm a normal person. I have a full-time job in sales and marketing, and also in the early early mornings and late nights and weekends, I am in seminary, super part-time, getting a master's of Bible exposition. So back in October, Dave had asked me to teach for the first time ever in front of you guys. Um, And somehow, maybe miraculously, he has invited me back to do it again. So I'm really, really excited to be with you guys today. This is going to be such a fun sermon. So buckle in with me for the next like 40-ish minutes just to manage expectations. Um, And let's see what God has for us. Okay, so um, to get started, How many of you guys have seen this picture? We should have a picture on the screen. Okay, how many of you guys remember seeing this? A a few of you, right? Like Dave has talked about this picture in the past. So just to sort of root in, um, this picture represents all of scripture. So all of the little white bars at the bottom each represent an individual chapter of scripture with Genesis 1, the beginning of the story on the left, and Revelation 22, the end of the story on the right. And all of these really beautiful colored archways represent every time that there is a connection to be found between multiple chapters within the biblical narrative. So every time the Old Testament points ahead to something that is going to be done in the New Testament, there's an arch. Every time the New Testament references something that happened in the Old Testament or that was prophesied in the Old Testament, there's an arch. And so today... I have been tasked, I brought markers. You guys, this is seriously gonna be so fun. Multiple colors. Okay, I have been tasked with showing us the arch between Psalm 2 and Acts 4. This board is literally bigger than I am, so this is gonna be a really fun day. Okay, and I have titled our sermon for today 
the Eras Tour. <laughs> Psalm 2's version. Now, I did not give our sermon that name arbitrarily or just because I am a Swifty and I love a good Easter egg, although I am and I do. Um, I have given our sermon that title for two actually really important reasons that are, that are gonna be foundational for our talk today. The first reason that I have named our sermon today the Eras Tour, Psalm 2's version, is because it is absolutely critical for us to understand that the words that we see as black and white flat words on the page of Psalm 2 were never intended to just be flat words on a page. These were lyrics that were put to music that were sung both individually in the quiet of the night and corporately as a worship song. And so we need to remember first and foremost that the words of Psalm 2 were set to music. And we all know, right, as part of the human experience, that music does something to us as human beings. It's the reason why we can hear a song that we haven't heard in 20 years and like be singing along. And we might not even realize we're singing along, but all of a sudden we stop and we're like, hold on a second. How do I even remember these things? I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I remember the lyrics to the song. It's the reason why when we hear a song that we haven't heard in a while, we say, oh, this just takes me back. It's the reason why all of my fellow millennials freaked out during the Super Bowl when we heard, peace up, A-Town down. We love. Music does something to our souls. Music engages our memories in a very, very specific way. And in the same way that we know that music engages our souls and engages our memories and captivates us, in the same way, the song of Psalm 2 was a musical piece that impacted the soul of the people of Israel. Now, the second reason for today's title is that because this song was deeply implanted in the collective memories of the people of Israel, Psalm 2 became this sort of like communal anchor in the storm across multiple eras of the biblical narrative. And so what we are going to do today is we are going to walk through every biblical era that happens from Psalm 2 to Acts 4. If you're a Bible nerd like me, you're probably looking at me like I'm insane because that's about a thousand years. But we are gonna go through every single era of the biblical narrative and take a look at how the people of Israel were actively using the music and the lyrics and the collective soul impact of Psalm 2 in each biblical narrative. Are you ready for it? Does that sound good? All right, so the first era that we are going to talk through is called the United Kingdom era. I'm so sorry that my handwriting is so bad, you guys. Maybe you can't see it yet, but you will. All right, so the first era that we need to chat through is the United Kingdom era. Now, something that's actually really special about Psalm 2 is a lot of times with the Psalms, we actually don't get a ton of historical context for why a certain song was being written. Like we see the words of lament or praise or thanksgiving or whatever emotions it is that the psalmist is feeling when, they, when, he, when he wrote that song. We see the outpouring, but a lot of times we don't actually know what happened to cause that outpouring. However, with Psalm 2, we actually do have a really important piece of historical context. 
Most scholars believe that in the case of Psalm 2, um, this song was written by King David in response to the covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel 7. Now, let's just pause here for a second because I just said a Christianese word and you guys might be sitting there like, we don't know what a covenant is. We don't use that word typically in 2024. So don't be afraid, that's why I'm here. Um, The word covenant is simply an agreement or a promise that is made by God with his people, okay? An agreement or a promise that God makes with his people. And there are many covenants in scripture. Um, Before the moment with King David, God has already made a covenant with Noah and with Abraham. And after this moment, he'll make additional covenants that are found in scripture as well. Um, But in this particular moment, this moment between God and David is called the Davidic covenant, which makes sense, right? We'll just write that down for safekeeping. Okay. So in this moment of promise and agreement between God to David, God says this. This is 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And then a few verses later, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, in this moment, God makes a declaration that not only changes the trajectory of the entire biblical narrative, but it also impacts the trajectory of all of human history. In this moment, God says to David, there is going to be a king from your bloodline who is going to rule over the nations forever. And this word forever is important. If you read the full chapter of 2 Samuel 7, you see the word forever eight different times. If you read it out loud, you just hear it again and again and again, forever, forever. This king from your bloodline will rule forever. So today, as we go through each biblical era, we're gonna do a fun little exercise that will hopefully excite our auditory learners and our bodily kinesthetic learners. Um, we are, I am going to read the first two verses of Psalm 2. We're going to read it while music is playing because music embeds itself in our souls. And while I'm doing that, you guys are going to do, for every era, you're going to do a different bodily activity that I tell you to do. So in this case, here's what we're going to do. While I read Psalm 2, 1 through 2 or 3, you guys are going to go like this. You're going to make an infinity sign to symbolize forever. Okay, does that make sense? Are you guys tracking? All right, let's try this. We'll see how it goes. Um, All right. Scott, hit it. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Nice, very nice, guys. So in our first era, in the United Kingdom era, Psalm 2 is used as a reminder that God's promise to David is forever. That leads us um, into our next era. So uh, as the biblical story progresses, 
David's kingdom is eventually split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So this next era is aptly called the split kingdom era. Now, during this season of the split kingdom, this era lasts for like roughly 400 years. And during this time, there are dozens, if not hundreds of kings who are rotating through the throne over the course of these centuries. Now, some of them are on the throne for literally like a week. (laughs) Some of them are on the throne for like 52 years. Some of them ascend to the throne in the way that was peaceful and planned as their father had sort of ordained it, that they would be the crown prince. Others wrested the throne away from the person who is currently in charge in a way that would rival any HBO series. There was a lot of differences with all of these kings over the 400 years. But one thing remained consistent. For every Davidic king that ascended to the throne, the words of Psalm 2 nay, the song of Psalm 2, was used as the coronation song. So every single time that the Hebrew people anointed a new king, the the song of Psalm 2 was playing in the background. Now pause here because I just said another Christianese word of anointed. What does it mean to anoint a king? Anointing was a practice used in the ancient Near East. It was a symbolic act in which olive oil would be poured over the head of the person who was being anointed. And this pouring of oil over the head symbolized being set apart and appointed to a specific job ordained by God and to be done in partnership with God. In this case, the job of being king. So as the olive oil flowed over the newly anointed king, as this person was told, you have been set apart by God, you have been appointed by God to do a job in conjunction with him, the song of Psalm 2 was playing in the background. And this rooted the Hebrew people in the truth of the Davidic covenant, that God's promise to David would last forever. And they were reminded of this every time they anointed a new king. So once again, let's embed this in our souls. Um, This time, when I read Psalm 2 to music, what I want you guys to do is turn to the person next to you and just pretend to anoint them with oil. And if you're like, that's really weird and I don't know the person next to me, you can anoint yourself with oil too. Like, I'm cool with that. That's no big deal. All right, so let's do it. Why do the nations conspire? This is beautiful. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their their chains and throw off their shackles. All right, that was beautiful. Thank you guys for humoring me with that one. All right, so here as a reminder, I'm just drawing a crown. I thought about drawing like an olive oil jar, but I didn't really know how I'd draw that. So we're drawing a, a crown to represent the centuries of kings being anointed. All right. Now, 
During these hundreds of years of the kings rotating in and out of the throne, during that time, the people of Israel in the north and the people in Judah in the south were just consistently moving further and further away from God. And so we see it in the Old Testament that God sent several dozen prophets to the people to say, please turn back to me. Remember who you are. Remember the promises that I've made to you and your fathers. Repent, come back to me. But the people didn't listen to the prophets. And so because of that, because they didn't listen, God allows both Israel in the north to be conquered by Assyria and Judah in the south to be conquered by Babylon. Now, these foreign nations um, had a practice in the ancient Near East. This was very common. It happens even outside of what we read in scripture. This is actual world history. When a conquering nation would take over a smaller nation, it was common practice for them to uproot people from their homes, forcibly remove them from their communities, and physically ship them off to the homeland, to the conquering nation's like motherland. Now, the reason for that was they wanted people to basically be steeped in the culture of the motherland, and that they would ultimately get indoctrinated in that Uh, conquering nations, belief systems, religious practices, general ways of living. So the people of both Israel and Judah are ultimately shipped into exile, which leads us to the exilic era. Um, After a season in the exilic era, After a season in exile in Babylon and in Assyria, um, God eventually allows the people to return and rebuild the destruction that has happened in Jerusalem. So this is clearly the Cliff Notes version, but a little while later, it leads us then to the post-exilic era in which the people are allowed to return to their homes and begin to rebuild. Now, um, during both of these seasons, both the exilic era when they are displaced in Assyria and Babylon, and also during the post-exilic era when they are allowed to come back and return to Jerusalem, in both of those seasons, there would have been a feeling of displacement and pain and confusion. And that would have largely been rooted in a feeling of um, despair over the Davidic covenant, feeling like perhaps it had been broken. Because when the people were shipped off into exile, the line of Davidic kings, the line of those who had been anointed, set apart by God, it was broken. Suddenly there was no king. And yet God's covenants are forever. They're a binding agreement. And so in this season, the people of Israel and Judah would have clung to this question, who will be the anointed one now? Where is the anointed one? How is this going to work? As the line of Davidic kings had been broken, God's promise was meant to last forever. And so where is the anointed one now that we have arrived back from exile? And so in this season, when the people of Jerusalem would have heard the song of Psalm 2, that is the question that would have been beating through their hearts. We know that this is a covenant that we can trust. 
We know that God is good and that he will honor his promises. So where is the anointed one? And who is going to be the anointed one now? It was a question of faithfulness. So this time, when we play the song, I want you to look at the person next to you and say, where is the anointed one? Let's do it. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. That was good. All right, where is the anointed one now? All right, now, I want you guys to stick with me for just a second because we're gonna get a little bit technical for like two minutes, but I, I promise you, if you guys stick with me, it is, it's going to be so worth it. Are you guys down to get just a little bit technical for a second? Thank you for responding. It's literally so awkward when you're up here and it's just crickets, so I appreciate you guys more than you know. All right, now, during this time of questioning, of looking around and wondering, who is going to be the anointed one now? Um, now that we've been dominated and that we're ruled over and that there is an empire over us and we do not have a king on the throne, who will be the anointed one now? During this time, the people of Jerusalem would have begun looking ahead to the future. They would have believed that the anointed one was coming in the future and they would have had their eyes peeled on the horizon looking for who this person was going to be and when he was going to arrive. The anointed one is coming. Wait for the anointed one. Keep your eyes peeled for the anointed one, the one who will fulfill the promise that was made to David. You guys ready to have your minds blown just a little bit? The Hebrew word for the anointed one is Mashiach. Or, as we pronounce the word in English, Messiah. Are you catching this? As the Jewish people returned from exile in Babylon with no earthly king on the throne, they began to look to the future and ask, where is the Messiah? Who will be the Messiah? The Messiah is coming. Wait for the Messiah. Cool, right? Does anyone else think that's cool? I think that's cool. Thank you for the woo, whoever did that. <laughs> All right, so actually it gets even cooler. So, our next era is called the intertestamental era. That's gonna take me a second to write, so just one second. All right, now, in our Bibles, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is about 400 years of silence from God. However, as hopefully many of us in this room know, biblical history is world history. So just because there's 400 years of silence in our Bibles from the Lord does not mean we don't know what was going on in those 400 years. We do. And I'm going to tell you. In the season of exile, when the um, people of Judah were displaced and sent into exile by the Babylonians, the Babylonians were the reigning empire of the ancient Near East at that time. Eventually, and this happens during this 400 years of silence, during the intertestamental era, eventually the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and the Persians are conquered by a little guy who you might have heard if you were paying attention in Western Civ, named Alexander the Great. 
Now, Alexander the Great was a leader of the Greek Empire, which means that during this intertestamental era, during these 400 years of biblical silence from God, what was happening in the ancient Near East world was that the Greek Empire was taking over and expanding. And so during this time, because the Greek Empire had taken over, what we have as our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. For the Bible nerds in the room, that translation is called the Septuagint, if you care. And is anyone curious how the anointed one, the Meshiach, translates into Greek? It's a word you've heard a thousand times, and that word is, drumroll, Christos, or as we pronounce it, Christ. Where is the anointed one? Where is the Messiah? Where is the Christ? In the same way that saying goodbye, adios, arvidersen, au revoir, all of those are saying the same thing, so it is when we say the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Cool, right? So um, this time, I want you guys to, I'm not gonna read Psalm 2 this time because I'm gonna write on the board, but I want you guys to look at each other and say, where is the Christ? Because that is what the people of Israel would have been doing with Psalm 2 at this time. So good. Okay. Now, let's just think about the implications for a second here. Because our next biblical era, now we're getting into more familiar territory. Our next biblical era is the gospel era. Yeah, oh yeah, yep. We can breathe a sigh of relief. We're back in familiar territory now, dude. (laughs) All right. So in the gospels, which are four biographies of Jesus's life, death, resurrection and ascension, all told from four different points of view. In the gospels, we read right off the bat, the very first words of Matthew 1.1 are, this is my translation, listen up, this is the story of Jesus Christ. But to be clear, I don't know about you guys, but for a long time, I almost viewed it as like, if I was meeting Jesus and I was like, hey, I'm Brittany Dykus, he'd be like, oh my gosh, hi, I'm Jesus Christ. But this is not a name. This is a title. And when Matthew starts off his biography of Jesus's life by saying, listen up, this is the story of Jesus Christ. That is a declaration to his Jewish audience about who Jesus is. This is the story of Jesus, the anointed one. This is the story of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the story of Jesus, the Christ, the one who y'all have been waiting for and looking for and hoping for, and he's here. Thank you. (laughs) And every time we read the name Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in the four gospels, that is not a name. That is a title. And it is a declaration that he is the one who the people of Israel have been waiting for every time they hear Psalm 2. So if the gospels tell the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, um, then the following biblical era is called the apostolic era. 
And in this era, we see the word of God, the word of Jesus's life, spreading throughout the known empire. Now, hold on, because I can't do two things at once. Apostol, wait, apostolic. (laughs) I'm not good at spelling to begin with, so I certainly shouldn't be spelling words while I'm also trying to talk, but here we are. All right, now, in the apostolic era, in the book of Acts, we can actually trace the thread as we are reading the book of Acts from beginning to end, we can trace the thread of how word about Jesus's life and his message of hope and restoration is spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And so this, of course, brings us to our other bookend text of Acts 4. Remember, the purpose of today is to show how Psalm 2 ultimately connects to Acts 4. So we've been going at a pretty high level at this point. I like kind of joked earlier that we were talking the Cliff Notes version. And now we're gonna zoom in a little bit more. We're gonna slow down and look at Acts 4 to seek to understand how the members of the early church ultimately would have used Psalm 2 and that song that was deeply embedded in their souls as a community and how they would have used it as an anchor in the storm that they faced in Acts 4. So here's the context of Acts 4. Um, It's about two years after Jesus's ascension into heaven, and many of his followers are still living in Jerusalem. Um, They are constantly talking about Jesus and about what he's done, and their numbers are growing every day. And eventually, Peter and John, two of Jesus's original disciples, Peter and John heal a guy who has been paralyzed since birth. He's like 40 years old, and he's been paralyzed the entire time. And it causes a ruckus in the city of Jerusalem. The people are amazed. They're up in arms. They're saying, how did you do this? Peter and John are saying, only through Christ alone. He, Jesus, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the way that we have done this incredible miracle. And the religious leaders, predictably, are not happy about this. And the religious leaders who, for the record, in Acts 4 are named as individuals, and they are the same individuals who ultimately plotted Jesus's execution just two years later. So these are not empty threats coming from these religious leaders. They throw Peter and John in jail for the night. They let them out in the morning, and they're like, listen, we can't keep you here, but y'all better not talk about this guy ever again. We don't want to hear you calling Jesus the Messiah ever again moving forward. Keep it to yourself. And so our other text for today is what Peter and John do in response to those threats from those same religious leaders who ultimately successfully, successfully-ish, executed the Messiah. Now, here is what they say in our other book and text. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. These words should sound familiar. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
stretch out your hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here we see that Peter and John's immediate reaction to being threatened with probably death was this. They returned to their community and they were authentic about the concern at hand. They steeped themselves as a community in prayer and they buckled down on declaring the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And they did that by coming together and corporately singing the words of Psalm 2 as a prayer. In the face of murderous threats, the early church knew one thing that remained crystal clear, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfillment of all they had waited for. And they were not going to be silent about it. And in fact, um, I want you guys to see what the early church actually asked for in verse 29. Because if it were me, I would be asking that the adversity would like calm down a little bit. Um, But that's not what we see here. Instead, what we see in verse 29, oh no, I skipped a part. Let me back up for a second, because this is actually really important. I want us to see how the members of the early church used Psalm 2 in this moment. So in Acts 4, in verses 25 and 26, um, they, they repeat verbatim the song of Psalm 2. You can see that on the left. They're singing these lyrics. And then immediately in the very next verse, the early church explains in their prayer exactly how they apply the words of Psalm 2 to Jesus. So look at these parallels. In Psalm 2, in the lyrics that they're singing, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. Then immediately in the next verse, they say, look at what Herod and Pontius Pilate did, how they conspired together. Against the Lord, against your holy servant Jesus, against his anointed, whom you anointed in the prayer of the early church. Does that make sense? Do you guys see this parallel coming to life? How the early church used this song that had been embedded corporately in their souls for centuries, how they used that as an anchor in the storm to point back to Jesus alone. Now we can talk about what they asked for in their prayer because it's really inspiring. Um, Let's take a look at verse 29 if we can. In verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Shockingly, beautifully, the early church didn't ask for the conspiring nations that were against them to calm down. They didn't ask for their season of adversity to go away. Instead, they asked for boldness to keep pointing back to Jesus. This word boldness means exactly what you would think it means. Open, clear, direct confidence. No ambiguity, no beating around the bush, no passive aggressive nonsense, but being unashamed to boldly declare Jesus as Christ, as the anointed one that humanity had been waiting for. So one last time, I'm gonna read the words of Psalm 2 to music as we incorporate it into our own souls. And this time, 
I want us all collectively to point to the cross as a representation of what the early church in Acts did as they sang the words of Psalm 2, remembering that Jesus alone was the Messiah. Let's do it. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up against, or the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So what do we do with all this? all this history, all these biblical eras? How do we allow the Holy Spirit to actually take these texts and impact our souls and our lives with them? Um, I'm gonna give you guys two reflection questions as we close. And a lot of times uh, here at Church of the Open Door, we have really beautiful opportunities to reflect on the things that we're hearing and we're learning and the ways we're being spiritually formed. We have a lot of opportunities to reflect on that in the service. And actually, we are gonna have a moment right after this. The song that we are going to sing in response is going to give us corporately an opportunity to reflect on what we've learned and to declare King Jesus. And also, at least for me, it's embarrassingly easy to walk out that door at 11.30-ish and somehow I just like mysteriously forget everything that I just learned and everything we just talked about. And I don't want that to be the case today. So my hope with these reflection questions is that you will actually reflect on them. Maybe you write about them in your prayer journal. Maybe you talk about them on the way home with whoever you're here with right now. Maybe you grab dinner with a friend later this week and you chat about it over a drink and dinner. Whatever that is for you, my, my prayer is that we will actually reflect on the things that we have learned so that our lives can be formed to look more like Jesus. Cool? So we're gonna have these reflection questions on the screen. If you want to take out your phones and take a picture of them, you are allowed to do that. I will not accuse you of texting. Um, the first reflection question is, what do these passages teach me about Jesus? More specifically, who does Psalm 2 declare that Jesus truly is? For me, I have been so struck these last few weeks with the reminder that yes, Jesus is our friend. And yes, we have the blessing of having a personal relationship with him. And also, he is so much more than that. Jesus is the long awaited Messiah that generations of Hebrew people waited for and clung to the hope of and looked ahead to the future for. And he is here. Who do these passages teach me that Jesus truly is? And then the second reflection question is how do these passages shape the way that I follow Jesus? More specifically, how does the early church in Acts 4 serve as a model for boldness in declaring who Jesus is in my life and in my sphere of influence? I, I have been so impacted by the early church asking for boldness instead of asking for the adversity to be taken away. 
And what many Bible teachers might not tell you is that if you're doing this whole thing well, most of the time if you're wrestling with the text for weeks leading up to a teaching moment, um, the Holy Spirit is like working in you first. (laughs) It's actually the reason why I prefer the term lead learner instead of teacher because the reality is the Holy Spirit is shaping me through these texts long before I ever get ready to step foot on on this stage. And so in this moment, I would like to tell you guys a little moment of vulnerability for what declaring Jesus with boldness has looked like in my life over the last couple of weeks. Now, to be clear, it's going to look different for you. The ways that the Holy Spirit is nudging us, each of us in our hearts and our minds and our guts, the way that he is nudging us is gonna be as different and as unique as there are people in this room. But because I'm just a normal person who normally sits right there, I I want you guys to see at least one example of how this concept of declaring Jesus with boldness has worked itself out, at least in my life. Um, I have a really serious heart idol of my career. And this heart idol really came to light. Actually, last time I was up here preparing for uh, the sermon on Ecclesiastes 5. Um, Y'all remember the Ecclesiastes series that we did. We were in it for like 12 weeks, right? Do you guys remember the concept of Habel or Hevel? This concept of a mist that's an illusion, that's fleeting, that's not gonna last forever. And how it, how it can um, constrict our view of what is important and what does actually matter. And so back in the fall, when I was preparing for that sermon, it became very clear to me that the Lord was like, Brittany, you have made your career, which is a good thing, you have made it the number one thing in your life. I was like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Um, but we, the Lord and I have wrestled over the last four months working through what does it look like to bring my desire for greatness in my career back down to size? What does it look like to, to bring it back to being a good thing, but not the main thing? And don't get me wrong, I love my job. I love my teams. I love the people that I get to work with and the states that I get to engage with. This is not me saying that I don't wanna do my job anymore, but my priorities had gotten out of whack and and it was very clear to me um, that there was a heart idol problem. So for the last few months, we've, we being me and the Lord, have sort of been wrestling through like, how does that play out, bringing it back down to size? Flash forward then to the last few weeks where I've been wrestling with this question of, Lord, what does it look like to declare Jesus as king Jesus as the anointed one of the throne of my heart with boldness. And so last week, I was in a talent review conversation with my boss, and these conversations are normally like talking about hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future and growth opportunities and what comes next, all of the things that my heart idol just feeds on. And instead, I heard myself through tears in the back of my eyes and, f- and hands that, if I'm being honest, were still a little bit clenched. I heard myself saying, actually, in this season, I don't wanna keep growing at work. Actually, I need to be downshifting all of the mental energy that's going into work so that I can upshift the mental energy that's available for ministry. And it was really hard. But the words of the early church of Acts 4 were just beating through my veins. 
Lord, give us boldness to declare who you are. And again, that is going to look different for all of us. That's, that's my story. That's how the Holy Spirit nudged me in wrestling through these texts. But for you, it might be different. For you, it, it might be um, talking to a loved one about what Jesus is doing in your life and you, they don't actually even care about Jesus, but you're gonna tell them anyway. Or maybe it's offering to pray for someone in real time in that moment, even if you, you don't know if they even like religion or if they even have a relationship with Jesus at all but you're feeling prompted to declare Jesus's supremacy in that moment. Or maybe it's, maybe it's something as simple as like wearing a t-shirt or having a sticker on your notebook or on your Stanley cup that declares who Jesus is or declares that you belong to him. Or maybe it's, it's something as seemingly small, but so profound as in the quiet of the night all by yourself saying under your breath, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, I I believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So what is it for you? How is the Holy Spirit nudging you right now to declare who Jesus is, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, in your own life and in your own sphere of influence? So Lord, as we go into our weeks, may the words of Psalm 2 serve as a reminder for who Jesus is. And may the model found in Acts 4 embolden us to declare who Jesus is to the people around us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.